Hi, it's Dylan. Welcome to episode 45. The Garrett Cole, Eric Bedard, John Candelaria Memorial episode of the Yins Above Replacement Podcast. I am Rob Beer Temple. I cover the Pirates for The Athletic in Pittsburgh. And I am joined by the bright-eyed and bushy-tailed Stephen J. Nesbitt. And who else is here, Rob? We have a special guest today. That's right. New season, new spring, new year. And a new guest, Mark Simon from Baseball Info Solutions, is going to talk about some info solutions and some baseball and all three. The Buckos need a lot of solutions out there. Yes, they do. Mark, how the hell are you? I'm very good, and I'm right now trying to find a number 45 to counter your 45. Uh, (laughs) How about uh, Dave Augustine? Oh, good one. Good one. I like that. Well, it's... uh, it's It's been a couple of weeks now that we've been down here in Bradenton. Nez was down for a bit. I've been down here for a bit. And one thing that both of us have noticed is the Pirates are, as it seemed, is a little bit of a broken record for the past couple of years, but they are putting a renewed emphasis on defense. And that's one of your gigs, isn't it? It's one of your bags. That's one of your things. Defense. Let me ask you about the big free agent signing. And I, that's Pirates big that is yeah, uh, Jared Dyson <laughs> Jared Dyson an intriguing pickup and uh, you have some uh, you, you kind of had an interesting rating of him coming into the offseason didn't you yeah um, so just to explain what our company does our company provides defensive uh, metrics uh, and just metrics of all different types to major league teams mm-hmm. um, we have been doing that since 2003 we are the inventors of the defensive statistic defensive run saved um, that is a statistic that attempts to garner a player's entire value from the defensive side of the ball, which I think is something that we typically would find hard to quantify. But in the analytic era, teams uh, teams look for that sort of thing, and they're able to do it. Gerard Dyson is featured prominently in our new book, Fielding Bible Volume 5, if I'm not mistaken, uh, as having excelled last season and the last couple of seasons for the Arizona Diamondbacks, in fact, on page 53 of the book. Um, the way that our statistic works, I guess I would say that, like... It, uh, 20 and above is a gold glove type fielder. Zero is average. Negative 10 is poor. And there are some pirates that certainly fit into that. 10 is good. A lot of guys will be in the uh, 5 to 10 range. Gerard Dyson, over the last five seasons, has averaged 12 runs saved per year, which is notable because he's played the 60th most innings hmm. of any outfielder in that time. So... He's essentially maximizing his contribution on the field when he is there uh, by getting to a lot of balls that other outfielders are not able to get. So, yes, he's 35. Yes, he doesn't hit, but he's going to bring some contribution to this Pirates team. I was curious to hear from you, Mark. This is Volume 5, first uh, fielding Bible since 2015. Has there been significant change in the way that uh, we analyze defense and the way you guys have uh, put this together, uh, I guess, how has that changed over the years and especially in recent years? So Fielding Bible Volume 1 came out about 13, 14 years ago. The owner of our company, uh, John Dewan, used to own Stats, Inc. Uh, mm-hmm. It was kind of uh, the predecessor to all of this. He sold that to Fox, started this new company that tracks defense in very minute detail. And 
back then, um, we were we were kind of just getting started. And I've, I've been with the company now. This is my third year, so I wasn't there. Uh, but essentially, it was a build-up to this point. And as things accumulated, as you were able to ascertain fielder value, getting to balls and getting people out, and you were able to uh, get fielder value on throwing, and you were able to get fielder value on pitch framing, and all that kind of gets smooshed together into defensive run save, one of the things that happened in baseball was the evolution to where defensive shifting became a much more prominent thing. Right. And when defensive run saved started, that was not like a thing. It was kind of, we worked off of the belief that the player decided where he was putting himself on the field for the most part with a little guidance from the team. Nowadays, the team's telling you exactly where to stand for every batter that comes up, uh, and it varies all over the place. So what we were able to do for this most recent book is for infielders, we were able to take positioning and make it a team thing, and then everything else, did he get to the ball? Did he complete the play? Did he make the throw? Uh, did he throw the guy out trying to steal? All of that stuff is its own thing now, uh, and it's kind of cool that we can we can measure things and, and just random example for you. Take someone like Fernando Tatis Jr., the shortstop for the Padres, mm-hmm. who was really good in about 100 games last year. We can tell you that he was the second, third most effective shortstop at actually getting to a ball, but in terms of trying to complete the play and make the throw to first base, he was dead last. Sure. Um, and I think that that's interesting to be able to lend that kind of context to a discussion. Uh, you can do it for any team. The cool thing about the book is we have essays on all 30 teams. We have essays explaining how our stats work, both from a complicated uh, mathematical level to a more simplified, hey, here's what you should know. Um, and Gerard Dyson, uh, among outfielders, just to get back to the point, Gerard Dyson, 12 runs saved per year, 60th most innings. That's like, that's like Kiermaier-esque. That's, that's a guy that you would want to be playing, uh, in the outfield for your team, even though admittedly his offensive contribution is going to be not, not quite up to snuff. It'll be interesting to see how, I guess we sort of get an idea how the Pirates are going to use him. They've been, been very careful with him here at the start of camp. He missed, you know, he, he didn't play in the first couple of games and, Derek Shelton said that was intentional. That they, you know, he's he's a 35 year old veteran. He knows what to do. He knows how to pace himself. But it, you know, we saw last year with a guy like Melky Cabrera, and it's you know obviously a different player, different skill set. But he had that you know very good April May. Got a lot of people excited. But by the All Star break, he was clearly run down and out of steam. How do, how do you think that the Pirates should best employ a guy like Jared Dyson? Considering too, their their circumstances where they don't necessarily have a lot of options uh, for major league caliber outfielders right now. So I thought for sure that he was going to wind up with a team that was considered an upper level team, unlike mm-hmm. a minor league deal or um, as a fourth or fifth outfielder, because his best role is probably seventh inning to replace your butcher in the field in a close game, mm-hmm. um, to kind of be, a, like, I like to call it the defensive closer, uh, <laughs> and I think he would be very good at that. And on the Pirates, it's a little different, because you traded Marte, uh, and you have a, a kind of a, a need here, and I think in this season, which is kind of a season... 
of rebuild and transition uh, to how a new regime is going to do things. He's essentially a placeholder, right, for mm-hmm. for whatever you have coming uh, in the pipeline. I, and I, I just think if you play him uh, some, I think a lot of good things will happen. If you play him every day, I think the 650 OPS is going to come back to bite you a lot. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think the 100-ish games mentality for him is not a bad thing. And then when he's not uh when he's not starting, defensive closer is like the ideal role because he can play all three positions and play them well. In the in the Pirates essay, I think the the eye test and the numbers agree here where the Pirates had uh had real real issues at the at the infield corners last year. They had uh, Colin Moran, uh, largely at third base. They had a little bit of Jung Ho Gung there. Uh, neither of them, neither of them were good. Uh, and then you had Josh Bell at, at first base and, and he makes up for it for the most part with his, with his hitting, even if that took a nosedive in the second half. But what I thought was interesting, uh, an interesting way you, you guys are able to splice this is that Moran at third base had a negative 21 DRS at the, at third base. Which, if 20 is gold glove, I don't know, negative 20 is, you know, wood glove or something. But what I thought was, was really interesting was, um, he was really bad going left and going right. So that's not great. But, um, he was, he was, I think it was, uh, yeah, first among third basemen in his good throw rate. Uh, could you break down yes. what that, uh, what that means? Yeah. So we have, an army of people here um, that watch games, and every game is watched, I think it's three times in all, um, and we're charting uh, <laughs> a very large number of things, ranging from, okay, where was the ball hit, how hard was it hit, um, did the fielder make the play, typical scorekeeping things. Then we have a system where we uh, rate players based on are they making a good fielding play, like a web gym kind of play, or are they keeping the ball in the, in the infield to prevent a base runner from advancing on a ground ball hit down the line. Uh, so we've got that. We have misplays where you're tracking did the guy slip and fall, mm-hmm. uh, did two guys collide, allowing them to miss a ball. And then we have uh, catcher blocks. Was the pitch in the dirt? Did the catcher block it? Did the base runner advance? That kind of thing. For infielders, second, short, and third, we have a what we call our good throw rating, where we're assessing on throws to first base in non-double play situations, uh, did the guy make a throw that uh, that was essentially on target? And what we mean by that is, okay, did he get the out? And if he got the out, did it require a considerable amount of help from the first baseman to make the play. Did the first baseman have to do a, a real tough scoop of a short hop? Well, in that case, he doesn't get credit for a good throw. Mm-hmm. So you're looking for throws that are right on the money to first base, uh, or he didn't have to come up. You don't, you don't want a throw that made the guy come off the bag and then have to make the tag. Uh, Colin Moran rated very well uh, in that stat. Uh, he had a very high percentage of accurate throws. That, in fact, I think he was first among third basemen, it's him and Kyle Seeger that are like the standard setters in that. So, so good for him. The problem was that he didn't get to enough balls to make plays. To and the, so our stats changed. Like the numbers changed from last year, from what they were in October to what they are now because of this new system part. Uh, that we put in place that allows us to separate positioning from actual fielding. And uh, he took one of the biggest nosedives uh, mm-hmm. among players. So he was bad, but then it, it just got kind of to a 
a, a negative 21, which, which is not a good number. <laughs> <laughs> no, bad number, bad. No. Well, let's go from the very bad to a guy who, the more I've delved into his digits this, this offseason and this spring, just surprises me more and more, and that's Adam Frazier. Um, you know, obviously, Gold Glove finalist last season, and there were some people who greeted that with raised eyebrows. Like, well, how did that happen? Because when you think great defense, you know, Frazier has, has, has been lauded for his offensive ability. Uh, you know, David Freeze says he's going to win a batting title someday. Yeah, he's you know, he's a I just I just love the grit and the and the way he goes about the game, but I always kind of took his defense for granted as just kind of ho hum, and maybe I was putting too much emphasis on just his range. But the more I'm reading in in the fielding bible about what he's able to do uh, when he's at the ball, where he's positioned, how he gets to the ball, and then once he's able to throw it and make plays, and I talked with him about the transfer and everything this year, I'm becoming more impressed with his ability as a second baseman. Yeah, um, by our numbers, he's, I guess we would say he's alright. Um, he took a little bit of a hit too, uh, from positive to, to essentially average. And like, I think with defensive run save, you have to kind of take it like, if I got, he's negative one, but to me that's like average. That's not, that's essentially zero. Um, he, he, he was good in 2018 in the sample that he showed then. Uh, he had four defensive runs saved in 400 innings. That's, that's perfectly good. I would say that if he wants to get better, um, turning the double play would be one aspect in which he could get better. And then balls up the middle would be something to focus on for him, uh, that he, he needs to do a little bit better job of going to the, to the uh, hand side, I guess, so to speak, to try and make plays uh, because his numbers there are what are probably keeping his defensive rating down. Back to the hot corner, you uh, you talked last year to Cabrian Hayes. I think it was in the middle of his, or maybe late in his his season for the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast, and I absolutely love that interview, and it, it's included in the the Fielding Bible um, version five. And uh, was curious just to hear from you because we all have our own own takes on him and his his ceiling and his future but what stood out to you about that conversation um it seemed to me that he was very aware of what he was i think um he had good self awareness like yeah. i think he knew that he needed to hit uh, a little bit better uh and he was uh, humble and respectful about his defense and it was clear that his father had been a very strong influence on him, uh, in a good way. And uh, he was talking about wanting to improve uh, certain aspects of his game. And I asked uh, the folks at Fangraphs who do the minor league scouting uh, specifically about the idea that he wanted to improve on first step movement and things of that sort. And they said that he was already fantastic at that for someone at the minor league level. So I think that, that, that that's, I thought that that was kind of funny and good for him. And uh, by their standards, I think they have him as the 30th ranked prospect in the game, Pirates top guy. Uh, yeah. I think if he hits, I think he will be up and he will probably be up to stay. Yeah, I, I don't want to spoil all this whole interview. But there are a couple of stories I, I wanted to mention. <laughs> One was uh, you asked him about how defense came uh, to be important to him, and he said it started with his travel ball team when he was a kid, and they, they wore these Superman shirts to practices, and <laughs> his goal was to hit the Superman logo on the front of the shirt, and that's a pretty good way to figure out where the chest is, I guess. So yeah. that worked, and, and then his, his dad, obviously, former big leaguer Charlie Hayes, 
He said when he when they used to play catch, if he didn't throw it properly and it wasn't going to hit him in the chest, the dad his dad would just let it go, and he'd have to run after it. And that's a that's 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 pretty good. I mean, I, I'm I'm going to borrow that when I have kids down the road. <laughs> Maybe they'll be third baseman someday. <laughs> Mark, as, as I was reading through the the, uh, the essay about the Pirates in the, in the Fielding Bible, the one sentence that, that maybe surprised me the most, the one sentence I did not expect to read, uh, if, if you, know, you take me back a year in time, the one sentence I would not expect to read was, the brightest spot for the Pirates' defense mm-hmm. was backup catcher Jacob Stallings. Um, coming into the season, you know, with, with, with Cervelli and Elias Diaz ahead of him in, in the pecking order, you know, he didn't make much of Stallings' chances to really establish himself last season. But with the way things worked out, with Cervelli being injured, with Diaz just being totally ineffective, uh, they needed they needed a hero <laughs> behind the plate. You know, sticking with the Superman theme, and and Stallings really emerged as a guy who proved he could be trusted with with the ball, literally on every play, every pitch. So I'm looking at his defensive numbers now, and I want to give props to uh, the person who wrote the Pirates essay, Andrew Kine, a former Pirates Mm -hmm. intern, as a matter of fact. Um, He is very, um, I guess you would call it, balanced in his skill set. By the way that Mm -hmm. our numbers work, um, so we're looking for catchers. We're looking at pitch framing. We have what Mm -hmm. we call strike zone run saved, which measures catcher's effectiveness at getting extra strikes. And we're taking into account the pitcher on the mound, the batter at the plate, the umpire behind the plate, all of whom Mm -hmm. can impact the strike zone. Uh, And Jacob Stallings comes out a little above average at that. We uh, have a metric that assesses, is the guy good at uh, blocking pitches? Um, Did he block it? uh, Essentially, did the base runner advance, yes or no? Um, Mm -hmm. And he rated... Above average in that, uh, for, uh, someone who played 61 games, he did fairly well for that. We have a stolen base metric. Uh, he caught, uh, seven guys, picked off three others, and only 12 guys stole on him. That has a run value as well. Everything has a value in runs that accumulates over 162 games. It may only be worth a fraction of a run at first, but then it amasses and amasses and amasses, and you get a number. And then the last thing that we have is, it's, it's a little hard to explain, but we have a thing where we look at each pitcher and we compare how they did with each catcher on the team. Mm-hmm. And if you did well with your pitchers and the other catcher didn't, that's a point in your favor. And Jacob Stallings had the fortune, I guess, of having <laughs> Elias Diaz as the guy that he was being compared to. <laughs> and his numbers are... Uh, Elias Diaz's numbers are not good. Jacob Stallings' pitchers combined for a 4.43 ERA when he caught. Um, when you compared him with each guy, he came out better, uh, and that mm-hmm. had a value. And then he got a very small kind of fraction of a value for balls hit right in front of the plate, where he made plays uh, and was able to get outs. And I'd point out the Pirates were 28 and 25 when he started, so um, it, it's likely he was doing something right. <laughs> the Buckers are a playoff team with Jacob Stallings. I, I, to that to that point, um, uh, it, it says in the Fielding Bible here that that uh, I think it's four forty three ERA when Stallings was in and five ninety nine. I think when when Diaz was in, that sort of uh, seeing which one of those two guys is, is left here, uh, sort of shows which way the Pirates are going. They've brought in. Luke Maley, John Ryan Murphy, these plus defensive players, uh, catchers, but not only catchers, we're talking about Dyson, uh, around the field, they've, 
they've prioritized defense. They're keeping Eric Gonzalez around, even though he hasn't, you know, barely hit above his his weight. And I was curious to hear from you, um, I guess, when a team takes this sort of stance where they say, uh, we're going to prioritize defense, we're not going to be, well, they're not saying this, but I'm saying this, they're not going to be great. Uh, not going to be a very good team, not going to do a whole lot of winning this year. And they have this whole host of pitchers who have underperformed the last year, last couple years. And it seems that they're saying, we think with an elite defense, if we can get there, we can make these pitchers better. That makes them more tradable, makes our team better overall down the road. And we're going all out on defense to make our, uh, you know, to improve the value of our pitchers. Um, I was curious to hear from you, what sort of correlation do you see, have you seen over the years between um, a good defense and, and how that helps pitching? Well, um, I look at it from like a, a wins and losses and runs allowed kind of perspective. Yeah. And if you look at last year, top three defensive run save teams in the National League were the Dodgers, the Diamondbacks, and the Cardinals. Two division winners and a team that overachieved uh, mm-hmm. for a good chunk of the season. Uh, in the American League, the top four teams in defensive runs saved were the really good teams and the teams with really with uh, with pitchers that look better. Astros, Indians, Rays, and A's. I want to let me give an example of how a defense can help uh, pitchers. Uh, um, let me go to the National League, and well, it'll be a, kind of a switch. But uh, Yunjin Ryu on the Dodgers. Yeah. Um, he's a he's a guy with a really good changeup. And he induces a lot of ground balls. And he has to have a good defense behind him if he's going to do that because you got to be able to make the plays because he's not necessarily a blow-you-away kind of pitcher. Uh, he, he struck out less than a guy in an inning last season. His ERA last season was 2-3, but if you took his strikeouts, walks, home runs, and you calculated his FIP, FIP, uh, you would have figured him for an ERA of about 3-1. What's the difference in that? The difference is in, in that is that when there was a ground ball hit, uh, the Dodgers made the play uh, more than you would have thought. And that's because their infield defense is very good. They position their guys very well. Uh, Kike Hernandez, very good. Bellinger, when he moved to first base, pretty good. Uh, Justin Turner, Max Muncy, uh, all solid defensive players. So they knocked three-quarters of a run off his ERA, or what his ERA should have been, because hmm. they had a good defensive team. Uh, same thing was true for him in 2018. Now he's going to the American League, where his infield is Travis Shaw, uh Biggio, Bo Bichette, Vlad Guerrero Jr., and I would worry for him, A, being in the AL East, B, not having a good, as good a defense behind him uh, if he's going to be as successful this year. That's not a Pirates example, but that's an example of how I think a defense can impact a pitcher uh, on an individual level. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. That's, that's good stuff. Well, I, I like that I get something to think about. <laughs> yeah, indeed. indeed. <laughs> well, when Nez mentioned Eric Gonzalez a moment ago, that gave me something to think about because I thought maybe for for a while a stat you guys might want to look into, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and call it the bowling ball stat. Uh, <laughs> Eric, and I think you know where I'm going with this, Nez. <laughs> Last year, Gonzalez had one of those years. It seems to bite a guy every now and then where you just take out players on your own team. 
<laughs> and you're essentially a bowling ball on the field. Could you metric that for me and tell me who the so, most dangerous guys are on the field? So that, that's season? actually, and I can't do this quickly, but I could, <laughs> I could tell you, like, over, in fact, maybe we keep talking, maybe I can get it in a question or two, uh, <laughs> but which guys were involved in the most collisions? Uh, last year, I think is is the kind of that's essentially what you're looking for yeah. with that, yeah. right? You're you're trying yeah. to figure out who's the most collision prone player in baseball. Let's see if I can do <laughs> that. Uh, I would say within one question, hopefully the thing will, will spin enough that I'll be able to uh, my my computer will spin enough that I'll be able to figure it out. <laughs> well. <laughs> well, hopefully it comes in this question because the last question I had for you was just in general, and it, and it again touches on what Nez brought up. How much, in, in the case of the Pirates especially, uh, can uh, uh, making strides defensively, improving the product from, from where it was last year with them, make up for the fact that this is not a team that is going to score a ton of runs, not a team that's going to hit the ball over the fence very often? Can good defense make up for bleh? offense <laughs> i yeah i think so and just to uh, to make another point the benefit of going from bad to average is essentially at least in my mind the same as the benefit from going from average to pretty good um if you think about it and another uh, another example that i've been bringing out this is a few years ago with the mets they had lucas duda who was a, a, a a butcher in left field. He was not very good. Yeah. And he was like negative 15. He was like in that Colin Moran uh, territory for defensive run save. They replaced him with Eric Young Jr. And they lost something in offense there considerably. Uh, they moved due to the first base, though. They were able to keep him in the lineup. Uh, and Eric Young Jr. Uh, was a zero in left field. He was essentially average. Um, but the improvement in the watchability was quite high, and two, uh, the improvement in the quality of what the pitchers were having behind them was was better, uh, because those balls that were like sure outs that were not being made by Duda now were outs, and that was at least something that the pitchers could, could benefit from, and over the course of time, I, th- I think it did have a payoff for them. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have bad news. The thing came up with a whole list of like... 50, 60 guys with one collision. So that's, <laughs> that's not helping us out maybe, here. Maybe he's tied uh, for first place. Hopefully he's tied for first may, place. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a good way to put it. By the way, <laughs> can I, ju- I just drop this into I was I did this kind of on purpose at the start where I said Dave Augustine for your uniform number. So mm-hmm. just brief aside, if you have pirate fans that are older that are listening to this, they probably know that Dave Augustine <laughs> has a little connection uh, to my the team that I follow the most avidly, the Mets, uh, in 1973, Pirates were the defending, uh, two-time defending NL East uh, champs, uh, and at the very end of the season, the Mets caught them. There was a miracle game at the end of the season where Dave Augustine hit a fly ball off the top of the wall, and it looked like it was going over the fence, and it hit the very, very top, came back into play. The Mets threw a runner out at the plate to save the game, and then won the game in extra innings, and that was what propelled them to winning the NL East. So uh, I, there was a little method to my madness there to, to just kind of, and I'm sorry <laughs> if I tweaked any older Pirates fans <laughs> by bringing up Dave Augustine. I, I just found <laughs> the box kind of score for that though. game. That's great. Yep. That's great. Ball on the wall. <laughs> That's the stuff I love about baseball, though. You can't shift into that. Yes. You can't uh, save yep. a metric at you. You can't, and you probably, you know, would be 
or who knows if that would be the third batter he faced in that inning or not. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the stuff hey, I love about the game. Hey, Mark, before we let you go, where where can people find you uh, on social media? Where can we find your work? Sure. Um, all right. Start with Sports Info Solutions. You can find us at sportsinfosolutions.com. You can find more information about these kind of stats at fieldingbible.com. The numbers are also up at Fangraphs and Baseball Reference. On Twitter, you can go to sportsinfo underscore SIS for Sports Info Solutions. Uh, and uh, my Twitter is Mark A. Simon Says. You can buy the Fielding Bible. At actosports.com or Amazon or Barnes and Noble. I have made an offer on my Twitter. I will repeat it here. If you buy it and you show a proof of purchase, I will either send you five stats to know on your favorite player or I will write a poem about them. Uh, so if anyone wants in on that, feel free. Uh, you might enjoy checking out the company sportsinfosolutions.com. We do football too. Um, is that enough plugs for you? <laughs> That's good. That's good. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to send you my favorite player. I have to think of who it is now. Nice. <laughs> well, if I buy the book, Dave Augustine. Candelaria Dave Augustine. Now, Ooh, yeah. there you go. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for taking a few minutes and uh, and popping on the yar with us. And uh, you need to work on your on your Pittsburgh accent a little bit. I know you're you're based in PA though, right? You guys are out in uh, toward Lancaster. Yeah, Northeast Bethel. Like I live in Bethlehem, uh, and the company's based near Allentown. Okay. Well, my my in laws are from out that way, and they they always tell me it's Bethlehem or something like that. I, <laughs> I don't speak. Sorry, I, I can't drop any yins on you. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it, man. You got it. Thanks, Mark. And now let's take a quick little pause. If you were to guess on average how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week, maybe. Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities, basically a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel at any time. So, if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash Yins for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Yins for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. At this point, I'd like to pause for just a minute to ask you, our true-hearted fans and listeners, to click on the show notes of today's episode and then follow the link that's there for a very short survey. You guys know so much about us. You know that I love 80s music, that Stephen and I have deep-seated loyalties to Big Ten football teams that I'm not going to mention right now, but you know who they are. But, you know, we don't know anything about Yins. The survey is 11 super simple questions, and it's going to take you about 60 seconds. I promise. So head to the show notes for today's episodes, click on the link, answer the questions. We appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Nez, that was pretty cool. And um, a lot of what he's talking about, yeah, is is what I've been seeing 
for I think it's been six months that I've been down here in now. It's what it feels <laughs> and like. I was and I was there for a year before you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So not much has changed since you know, since you went back to those sunnier, cloudier, more snow-filled shores uh, on the banks of the Allegheny Monongahela. Uh, it's it's pretty much the same kind of deal. The Pirates finally won a game, which was terribly exciting. Uh, and they finally scored a few runs, and now they can't pitch to save their lives, and they're losing pitchers. Um, Stephen Brault is down with a shoulder injury for at least two weeks, it sounds like. Uh, Tom Kohler retired, so he's down for the rest of his life. <laughs> Clay Holmes is down with a broken foot. He'll be in a walking boot for four to six weeks. And it looks like uh, Derek Holland is rising. He, he could uh, be the biggest beneficiary of all this movement by moving. It looks pretty good that he'll be in the starting rotation uh, opening day. It does. Yeah, I was when I was down there at the start of camp before games started, I was remarking to some people that, uh, you know, they do kind of have a, a bit of a logjam in their pitching depth. And, and I don't – people don't like it when I say that because you think of, like, <laughs> the logjam as, as, like, good depth. Um, there's a whole lot of like m- like me- mediocre stuff in there, um, mm. but at, at some point you have to decide. Okay, do we do we keep giving Clay Holmes a chance, or do we say you're out of options, buddy, and see you later? Uh, I think they still think there's something in Clay Holmes that that is worth looking into, and so at the end of camp you are going to have to decide: Is Chris Stratton worth it to us? Is Clay Holmes worth it to us? Um, which of these guys can I send to the minors? Do I want to send a Mitch Keller to the minors just because we can keep everybody else if we do? Or does he belong at the majors because, well, he needs to figure things out at the majors? Um, mm-hmm. With Brault, is he going to be, make the rotation, make the bullpen? I think in the last week, all those answers, uh, all those questions have pretty much been answered. So, uh, fear, fear not, my logjam friends. We have, we have found, <laughs> found the way forward. And I do think it, it involves, uh, Derek Holland in the rotation. Brault's probably going to have to, uh, build up a little bit. He'll be a little bit behind. You wouldn't anticipate that, you know, three weeks from now he's going to be ready to to, uh, to to be in the opening day rotation. Of course, the schedule around the start of the season is always wonky enough that you can rock with four uh, for a while. And uh, and you'll have off days uh, that you can work around to, to slide in the fifth guy. So I do think Derek Holland would, would, will probably would either be their, their swing man um, or their uh, or their fifth starter, but uh, you know, not a bad guy to try out. He had a horrible year last year, but uh, some good stuff in the not too distant past. So, yeah, I think we've we've sort of settled on a rotation. Here's something: as I was, you know, I, I did a story that, that dropped this morning about the the pitching staff and and where things stand and, and and how it's kind of still evolving. We still haven't even touched on, you know, what's up with Chris Archer. Um, he threw live BP on Monday morning. And, uh, you know, the indications are, at least the initial indications are that, you know, things went well, that, you know, he'll be on track to get in a game here eventually. Um, but something that reader, loyal reader Michael L threw out in the comments section, and Michael, if you're listening, hi, Ian Stolen, uh, he, he mentioned any discussion of an opener for the fifth rotation spot, they could have cool start as he builds up his arm, it'll keep him on schedule, no up and down in the bullpen, and keep his innings count lower coming back from TJ surgery. And uh, I hadn't, to be honest, I hadn't thought of that. And it, it does sound like an intriguing possibility. I'm going to bounce it off of Sheltie and the, and the fellows over at camp tomorrow. Uh, today is Tuesday, uh, and it's an off day for the club. But what do you think of that possibility of, of using Cool as an opener? 
So I actually love that idea. I hadn't seen that comment, uh, Michael. How you doing? And I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot because I do think now. While I just said I think the rotation's figured out, I didn't mention Chad Cool in there, and I mm-hmm. I don't include him in the opening day rotation. I think right. uh, whether this is roster management or just wanting to hold on to everybody, I think there's a good shot he starts the season on the on the injured list as they slowly build up his uh, his innings and his arm. Um, talking to him, he seems to, to think that he's good to go and he can do however many innings he needs to uh, uh, or he's asked to do this season. But from an organizational perspective, I don't think they're going to push him very fast and it probably behooves them to take it a little bit slower with him, whether you start him down in extended spring, uh, whether you start him in an opener role, whether you put him in the bullpen to start the season. Um, I don't think they are ready to say, okay, you're a seventh, eighth, ninth inning guy. You're a, you're a one inning reliever. Um, yeah. But you don't get a whole lot of value out of a, a long reliever either, do you? So I don't know if it really makes sense to say, you know, Chad, you look great. Let's put you in the long relief role to limit your innings because he's only pitching when the games don't matter. So right. I, I think yeah. that would be a really intriguing uh, idea, something Chad would probably be pretty down with because if he shows that his arm's fine and, and he can keep going, then maybe stretch it to three innings, mm-hmm. maybe four innings. But you have a cap on, on what you're willing to let him go. Um, I think that's that's a more uh, agreeable option for probably both sides. So, yeah, ask Shelty. That could be an interesting one. Yeah. And for me, kind of a wild card in this situation, which, again, talk about things I never expected to say, is Hector Noessi, um, what up? <laughs> He's going to make his third start of the spring on Wednesday in a split squad game. And, you know, he's a guy that they, they he's 33 years old. Uh, he's pitched, a, a, you know, a few years in the majors. Then spent, I think it was three seasons with the KBO, um, pitching well in South Korea. And then ended up leaving, not because he was really not pitching well, but because of the tax situation. They raised the tax rates on the foreign players in the Korean Baseball League. And essentially his tax rate, he told me, would have gone up to like 50%. And you just can't make a living doing that. And it would have been better for him to come and and be a minor leaguer of the United States, which is what he did last year for the most part, than pitch in, in KBO. So he, he was with the Marlins system last year. The numbers in AAA were pretty good. And then he got called up later in the year, and the numbers were pretty bad. And he... <laughs> told us a couple of days ago that uh, he says, I was doing well. I was waiting for a call up. I think they called too late. <laughs> I threw a lot of innings in the minor leagues and I think I was a little tired. That's why they put me in the bullpen. So, and he, you know, he also, they also said, well, why, why then Pittsburgh? Was it, why'd you come here? Cause of the opportunity. And he says, I'm 33 years old. You see, every team has a lot of young players. I've got to go where the opportunities are because I won't pitch for the Yankees or Houston or those kind of teams. So, <laughs> <laughs> a little, and I, I enjoy the honesty, but um, say, but he's a guy that you know. The longer, the deeper we get into camp here, and we're you know coming up on you know what three weeks or so to opening day. Um, the closer we get to that, and if Hector Noesti is still pitching, you know, major league games and and being stretched out, you know, at the very least, he's a guy that could send to Indy and have maybe some sort of depth options, sports, you know, spot starts, that kind of thing. But a guy that I didn't, you know, admittedly did not know much about coming into January and February, now he's a guy that has, through circumstances at least, put himself in some sort of conversation. Yeah. Have you gotten any more clarity on on what you expect they'll do um, with this outfield? Is it set with uh, 
you know, are they set with, with Reynolds and Polanco and Dyson with Heredia as the number four? Or uh, do you think there's some some super, uh, super U or, or something else that's going to factor into that mix? Yeah, I'm, cu- I'm curious to see. I'm trying to get a grip on, on how they're using Heredia and how that might translate over toward the more toward the start of the regular season. It does, you know, Reynolds, I think that, I think they really would like to keep him cemented in left field as much as they can um, and not have to move him around too much, especially at the start of the year. So far from what I've seen from, from Gregory has looked pretty good. Um, you know, he's, he's certainly, you know, he's, he certainly doesn't seem to have any hitches in his swings. He's moving well on the bases. We've seen him slide a few times, you know, get back to bags, things like that. That has looked good. As far as fielding, he has gotten to some balls. It, it's always tough to judge fielding, you know, here in Florida because the weather conditions, the wind really is a factor in some games and it makes things a nightmare and, it, and it's hard to get a real true read on, on, a, on a, you know, on, on guys' fielding abilities compared to regular season where it's in those giant stadiums where there's not as much wind effect. Uh, one thing I have noticed is that on plays, uh, you know, maybe a catch is made or something and, and Gregory has to get the ball back to the infield. Uh, Frage or whoever's at second base will, will take several steps toward him and Greg will kind of lollipop the ball to him that he's really, you know, he's, 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 he's saving his bullets a little bit, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even, even on those kind of throws and things like that. And even on plays where, you know, it's a spring training game. You don't necessarily have to throw that guy at the plate, you know, cause if he scores, well, you know, big deal. Um, so we haven't seen Greg really unleash, you know, unleash hell from that arm of his because <laughs> he hasn't had to in these situations. So in the you know regular season, that's a different matter, and we'll see what happens there and how long he's able to do it and how well. But for now, I, I get the sense that you know, you know, you, you see you see Dyson out there semi regularly now at this point, and I think right. they're trying to get a sense of what guys like Socrates Brito and 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 Heredia can do. But I think the way it seems at this point, and I'm, you know, going to double this is on my to do list for later this week once we have a bigger sample size of games. Is it, it seems like it's it's Reynolds, Dyson, Polanco. Hmm. Now, before we let these people go, I have to I have to ask you, put you on the spot. Who's your opening day starter? Yes, my opening day starter would have been Chris Archer, uh, just Ooh. because I thought it would be fun to put him in Tampa Bay, and he's. <laughs> He's a veteran, and he's he's kind of earned that. And but now with the neck, and he's you know he's behind schedule. He's still throwing at the live. He's just at the live BP stage, and a lot of guys are making their third starts already. So I don't you know know if it's if it's if we're going to see him in that first series against the Rays. I think my opening day starter at this point is Joe Musgrove. I was going to go the same way. I my I my. Instinct during camp was yes, it was going to be Chris Archer. I was I was pretty confident in that. Uh, it just makes sense. He's the he's uh you know he's the vet among those guys, and uh, they're they're trying to tell him that hey, we believe in you. We believe in your ability to bounce back here and have a big season. But uh, yeah, starting uh, I think that may be taken out of their hands right now. So uh, I'm going to go the other way, and I'll say it's going to be Trevor Williams, another guy they mm-hmm. need to bounce back in a big way. Uh, mm-hmm. I do think I think I think it's Joe Musgrove, but I want to, for the sake of argument, <laughs> I think it's Trevor Williams, and uh, he's going to throw eight scoreless, and they're going to lose one nothing. Whoa, <laughs> that's more detail than I would have gone there. But uh, Tyler Glasnow goes nine. <laughs> no, no, it'll be Blake. It'll be Blake Snell. It'll be. Snell. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, 
Yeah, I think that's it, it's it's likely at this point that we'll see Musgrove. He's he's looked pretty good so far, and he, you can tell he's he's pretty laser focused on getting things done. So I, I think he he's a good choice. Would be a good choice for, for that gig as well. Um, I forget the other point I was going to make about the pitching staff and opening week. So I'm just going to have to save it for the next show, I guess. Nice um, no, that's all right. That was my bad. My bad. You know, it's it's an off day. Like I said, it's an off day here. And while Mark Simon was chatting, I had housekeeping come into my into my room here and, and offer to clean it up. <laughs> I and, thought that's what I heard. And to be honest, that's something that hasn't happened much since I've been down here. I had to go down and beg for toilet paper last week. So let's uh, maybe let's call it a day, and I will go down and, and try to flag down my housekeeping staff and let them know that all was well. They can go about their business in here and uh and, and we'll get that going so thanks for tuning in for listening and we will